0: Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the Women Offshore podcast. I'm April Killian, filling in for Ali Cedeno while she's on maternity leave. I'm a licensed mariner, a US Coast Guard officer, and a volunteer at Women Offshore. Women Offshore is a 501c3 nonprofit organization supporting a diverse workforce on the water. New episodes of the Women Offshore podcast are available every Tuesday. Subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen to podcasts on, and be in the know about the latest topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion within the maritime and offshore industries. Be inspired by the stories shared here. Thank you to the Oil & Gas Global Network, known as OGGN, for their continuous support as our podcast producer. They have the best energy shows on their network. Hello again, everyone. It's April again, and today I'm here with Kelsey Barian, and I am really excited today to talk with her. I know Kelsey well. We are classmates at Kings Point, and we actually went to sea together for our... First sailing. First? First sailing? Not our second? Oh, no. No, I was first sailing. I was my first ship ever. So, the on the APL Thailand, and mm-hmm. Kelsey was the engine cadet, and I was the deck cadet. So, we go back a while, and after the Coast Guard, we both although I was a little bit more roundabout, ended up joining the Coast Guard Reserves. And so today we're here to talk about life as a mariner and how Kelsey uses her experience as a mariner in the Coast Guard. And I'm just so excited for us to be here and talking. Before we get started, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers. They do not necessarily reflect the views or the official position of the United States Coast Guard. Thank you so much for being here, Kelsey. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background as a mariner? Hey, April, sure.
1: So it is good to be here, first of all, let me say. It's fun to catch up and bring back some old memories of crazy times. I'm pretty sure there was a gumby suit race down the hall at some point. That probably had pictures of and lost. So maybe we can't share any of those. So yeah, like you talked about, 2006 grad of Kings Point. And when I graduated, I decided I wanted to sail, but also still be in and around the Coast Guard. So I managed to get myself into the Coast Guard Reserve. I married another classmate who decided to go active duty Marine Corps. And we have two kids, currently four and five. We're living in Southern California. I've sailed through the years on a bunch of different things. I started on a cruise ship and I moved to oil tankers and then container ships. I currently hold a first engineer steam and diesel. I've kind of balanced my time since graduating between reserve duties and sailing and, you know, obviously moving around the country on my husband's schedule, sometimes out of the country and back again. I kind of joke that I have three jobs. It's basically it's being a spouse, being an engineer, being an officer, and then of course now I've added the fourth one of being a mom. So quite a bit of things going on. After my second child was born, I realized that I might've added one too many things and I probably needed to take a pause on something and that ended up being shipping. So I was actually fortunate enough. Someone sent me a list of active duty jobs. The Coast Guard was trying to find people to fill and they were desperate enough to consider reservists. And so I got active duty orders. It started in 2019 And when those were wrapping up, I was offered a second set on a different job that coincided with our move to California. So that was super helpful. And I'm still on active duty orders through next summer right now. That's awesome. Yeah. The timing worked out well. It's been very beneficial. There's been some travel and I've been off doing different things, but for the most part, having desk jobs has really helped, you know, be present as a parent and spend time with the kids. And they don't really understand the concept of like, I'll be back in a month. That's an eternity for them. So this is a good, yeah, this is a good middle ground for now.
0: That's great. And now you maintain
1: that license still, right? I do. My license is current. My SDCW is current. My union dues are current. I kind of think of it as I've paused shipping. I do want to go back my lifetime achievement goal, I think if I had to say one right now would be to finally get my chief's license. But yeah, I need some first time to do that. And been a little busy with other things. (laughs)
0: Definitely. (laughs) So how do you feel that your experience sailing as a marine engineer has helped you in your career as a Coast Guard reserve officer?
1: Well, so the funny thing is for most of my career, it technically hasn't. (laughs) The Coast Guard, as you know, they tell reservists like, go out and get experience in all the things and, you know, do prevention and do law enforcement and do sector ops and do all these different fields that are open to reservists so that if we ever need to plug and play you somewhere, mobilization or augmentation, that you can be there and do that. And so I've worked with the Navy. I did a deployment to Kuwait maintaining patrol boat, well, not even patrol boats by Coast Guard standards, little port security boats. So the 33-foot TPSB, the Navy's 39-foot sea arcs, mostly outboards or inboard outboards. That was kind of the closest I ever came to doing engineering stuff, was running the shop of guys that were maintaining that. And then for the remainder of my career, up until 2019, I did a lot of what we call PWICs, Ports, Waterways, and Coastal Security. So I did five years with the MSST in Honolulu, a couple of years with Sector San Diego, And then my last job as a traditional drilling reservist, I was doing a unit that prepares for hurricane response. So we had trucks and trailers and tents and generators and AC units and water makers and all that kind of stuff. And the idea was that, If we know there's a hurricane coming that we saddle up and get ready. And then right after it rolls through, we go down and we set up little command posts so that the folks doing incident command have hotel type resources to be able to function until something more permanent is set up. So I did all of those things and the Coast Guard was just kind of like, yeah, that's great that you have that engineering stuff. It's not equivalent to anything. I actually had to fight I mean, it wasn't like a fist fight, but I had to have several conversations with the DC Rating Force Master Chief to get them to accept our King's Point basic firefighting and advanced firefighting courses as equivalent to the Navy courses that are in the competency dictionary. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was really tough because I was always so frustrated. I'm like, I'm holding this little orange book that was issued to me by the Coast Guard National Maritime Center. And yet, if I want to walk on a Coast Guard vessel, everyone's looking at me and going, that doesn't count for (laughs) anything. It's like, oh my goodness. (laughs) And so I don't know if I've just irritated enough people or if there's more of us that are coming in and the word's getting out or whatever. But I have seen a little bit of change. And realistically, where my engineering background has really helped was when the active duty orders came up. And so I had a couple of jobs I could have taken. I say that not because like I'm an all-star, but because the Coast Guard was super desperate. And literally anyone that signed up was getting sent to something. One of them was a finance-related job. And someone tried to talk me into it. And I was like, this is not my skill set. It's just not where I belong. The other job was engineering-related, supporting major cutters for the Coast Guard. And so I went and talked to the person that was advertising the job, who was helpfully co-located with where I already was. And he was like, yeah, you know, we're doing engineering changes, which for common language, the Navy calls them ship alts, ship alterations, is probably the better term for it. But we're doing ship alts and we're doing the routine maintenance programming for a whole bunch of different cutters. So it was the National Security Cutters, the Whimsels, Polar Star, Alex Haley, and Healy, the icebreaker. And I was like, okay, I get this. Like, I know the 10,000 hour maintenance routine on an air compressor inside and out. I can help program that stuff. You know, these guys are lobbing suggestions at us for, hey, you know, this system doesn't work well, we should change it this way. And I have the background to go through and evaluate some of those. And so in that job, all of a sudden I found myself dropped into what the Coast Guard calls naval engineering. And I found that I was really well prepared for it because even though I didn't know, like I'd never set foot on a whimsel before in my life, it didn't take long to learn the specifics because I already had the basics. And so, you know, it's just a matter of learning the ancillary stuff. I'm already familiar and expecting, you know, engines and pumps and air compressors and steering gear and all the things that a ship has to have to be a ship. I then just had to learn the particulars of like, where is it laid out and how do they interact and what is the extra stuff that I'm not used to seeing, right? Because most merchant ships don't have controllable pitch propellers and most merchant ships, if they have a gas turbine, they're not trying to run them in tandem with diesel engines, and most merchant ships aren't trying to recover a small boat driven right up the stern into
0: not usually,
1: yeah, into a net. <laughs> so there's some things that were different, but within six months of being in that job, I was able to fly out to a whimsel and ride for a week and learn the particulars, and I went through you know every single space from bow thruster to steering gear, just looking around and being like, oh, okay this is where the water makers are. This is where this stuff is. I understand now why these guys are saying this is a terrible setup for maintenance or accessibility or whatever. And then we had some big things that happened. We had a major failure of a reduction gear on one cutter. We had to actually take a main engine for another NSC and pick it up and flip it over. To get to the crankshaft. Wow. And yeah, and take that out because it had gotten water in the oil and all the bearings were bad. So we had to replace all the main bearings in the crankshaft. So, like, doing the engineering planning for that, you know, being able to sit there and look at the drawings and have people tell you, like, yes, it can be rigged out, but there's only going to be six inches of clearance on each side. And you're like, I hope you really understand that that six inches on paper is going to turn into like two in real life because of something we don't anticipate. (laughs) So that really helped. And it gave me just kind of a common sense foundation so that when people are coming at things from different perspectives, which is inevitable in the world of ship support, that I could kind of go through and take all the different perspectives and kind of help everybody get on the same page, right? Because the cutters are only looking at why hasn't this been fixed yet? We've already told you about this. So I have the guys on the cutter that are looking at it just from the perspective of like, we told you this is wrong. Why isn't it fixed? And then I have people on the shore side going, hey, we have to go through, we have to update drawings. We have to talk to the manufacturer and make sure this is okay. You know, we need to make sure that the tech pub gets updated so that when you go back and look at why doesn't this work the way I want it to work, you're not reading stuff about a system that hasn't been on board for eight years. Right. So it kind of helps to be in the middle of all of that. And I transitioned from doing the immediate stuff in one job to the long range stuff, which is what I'm doing now. And so now we're planning for big things. So like Polar Star is an icebreaker. And every year in the winter in the US, she goes down to Antarctica and she breaks out McMurdo during the Antarctic summer. And that cutter is over 40 years old. So there's a lot of work that's invested in keeping her floating. She goes into dry dock every year you know, the propellers, all the ice impacts, they take a toll. So we do a lot of intensive work to keep her going. And we needed to do a service life extension program or a SLEP. And so I didn't start this planning, but my office that I'm a part of now did. They went six years ago and said, hey, here's all the things we need to do to bring Polar Star up to current code, to make sure that we've addressed all the safety concerns, to keep the equipment running and replace some stuff that's just beyond service life. We're going to need probably three years of dry dock to do this. And operationally, that's a non-starter, right? Like the first thing that came back was you will not miss a deep freeze. And it was like, uh, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> So we had to work through and figure out how to accomplish that same amount of work, but over five separate dry docks. And so going in and looking at it from an engineer perspective and being like, okay, we can tear this stuff up and get it back together in one three-month period, and then we'll send her down for a deep freeze, and then we'll bring her back, and then we start on these next things. Like, that's the kind of planning and stuff that having a good engineering foundation kind of helps with, because you can be realistic about... What can we actually accomplish? How much work is it going to involve? You know, maybe we say easy answers that business school teaches, like we'll throw on a second shift or we'll just add more people and we'll be able to do it faster. And then you find out that, yeah, but the physical space you're working in is so tight. We can't get more people in there or, you know, it's going to conflict with something else. And so that kind of real world expertise has really helped with the stuff that I'm doing in the office. Right, That practical
0: experience. Yeah.
1: Just being able to kind of visualize it realistically in your head go, "Mm, something's not going to quite make it here. We need to be a little more proactive in what we're deconflicting. That makes Um, sense. Yeah. And so my latest assignment, I kind of subbed out to go be the engineering officer on Coast Guard Cutter Stratton for a little bit while the permanent EO was on medical leave. And that was easily where my experience has helped the most, right? Because now it's real live, real time, shipboard engineering and you know, stuff's breaking and we need to get things together. And we had a major project going to change out the driven gear cases on the ends of the engines. And we're trying to cram that in, in the last six weeks before we left, there was a lot of stuff in there where, you know, I'm seeing things that I've seen before and it's helpful. And then I'm also running into things I haven't seen before, but at least I have the basic troubleshooting expertise to be like, okay, this is the first thing we're going to do. And if that doesn't work, then we're going to move into testing this. And if that doesn't work, then we're going to go into this And to be able to formulate the plan instead of being reactive and waiting for someone to tell me this is the next thing you should do.
0: Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would be an advantage to have that background because that's a knowledge base that not many people, I mean, there are some, but not many people in the Coast Guard would have for sure.
1: It's a tough thing. And I've talked to a lot of Coast Guard naval engineers about this now that I'm Suddenly dunked into the middle of this community. It's not something that's well programmed for in what we currently consider the naval engineering track. Because at most, if you're on the NSCs, you're doing a student engineer tour right out of school, right after you get your commission. You are doing maybe an assistant EO tour after that, but there's probably a couple years of grad school in there somewhere. And then you can either go, because we have lieutenants as EOs on 210s and 270s, the medium endurance cutters. So you can go and do that. But even if you do all of that, by the time you get back to being like EO of a national security cutter, which I would argue is a whole new era of cutter for the Coast Guard, your hands-on time doesn't match someone that's been sailing, I'd say continuously, because obviously we don't really sail continuously, but you know what I mean, actively sailing, for you know, ninety days or more a year for the same period of time.
0: Definitely not. It's Mark Lacour, editor in chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actionable intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Inevris is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Aneveris has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S dot com. Do you feel that there's an opportunity for the Coast Guard to capitalize on the experience of U.S. licensed marine engineers on a larger scale? I think there
1: is. And I think it's precisely for the reasons that I was just talking about, where you know, we have things that we expect of Coast Guard officers, and we expect them to learn certain things. We expect them to do shore tours in between, mostly in between sea tours. We expect them to learn how to write and do briefs and, you know, all of the skills that you accumulate as you get towards being a senior officer. And that stuff takes time too. And so as long as we're on this 20-year ideal career track, you don't really have time to go become a hands-on engineering expert and also be a really good officer. And so I think I actually wrote an article for that was published in US Naval Institute on this talking about major cutters meeting chief engineers.
0: Yes, I read it. And we can actually put that in the show notes. So people can read that as well. Okay, sure.
1: Yeah. So I wrote an article for that was published in Naval Institute, US Naval Institute about this concept. And Kind of what I argued for is to take the roles and responsibilities that are purely engineering focused and require that depth of expertise and to create that position, at least for the national security cutters, probably also for the offshore patrol cutters and the polar security cutters that are coming online. And the reason is that I argue that the Coast Guard is entering a new era of ships and all of the stuff that was on the 270s, the 210s, and the 378s, we were talking about pneumatic regulators and, you know, mechanical almost everything. And if something broke, you could kind of always jury rig it back together or figure something out to at least get what you needed until you got the right part. Right. The national security cutters in particular have so much more stuff crammed into the platform per square foot, above and beyond all of the things that make a ship a ship. And everything that we have is now semi-intelligent. It is ruled by industrial electronics. We have loops of control, starting with actual computers running Linux or Windows, going down into CAN bus, Modbus, Profibus, and all of these electrical, or sorry industrial electronics, languages. whoa, Yeah. So like you have to be able, you know, we have these remote operated valves and they sound so cool, right? Like you double click in the control room and the valve opens all by itself. Well, in order to do that, I need three cabinets worth of PLCs and communications equipment. And that valve is in a communications loop with probably eight other valves. And if one of them goes down, you lose all of them. And it's a lot. So, you know, when we start to have issues with, hey, why doesn't this remote valve work? And oh, by the way, there's more than a hundred of them on each NSC. Wow. You know, why doesn't it work? Well, I don't know. Did something mechanical vibrate apart? Is it jammed on the actual valve side? Is one of the cards or the communicators in the operator on the valve not working? Are we getting a bad signal from one of the cabinets? Like the chain of what could be wrong is so much bigger and more complicated than anything we've seen before that we struggle to retain all the stuff we've learned. And one of the things that I just experienced on the Stratton was that we had a particular motor as part of that Stern boat recovery assembly that I talked about. We had one particular motor that we burnt up and I'm not real thrilled that we did it. After the fact, we figured out it was a preventable mistake. And as we were going through the troubleshooting stuff to fix that and figure out what happened so we didn't do it again, my CO was going back through and reading deployment summaries from 2012 and 2014. And they talked about the exact same motor burning up in the exact same. And so what's happening is... We learn all this stuff, but there's no real place to keep it and store it and have it accessible and easy because also engineers hate writing. We're usually bad at it. and We don't want to get busted for having terrible grammar. So we just don't (laughs) write stuff down.
0: Right. That sounds like knowledge management. (laughs) It's a thing. And it's a thing on commercial ships as much
1: as it is on Coast Guard cutters. I can't tell you the number of times I've gone into a work order and just been like, Completed as written. And I'm like, what? really, dude, this doesn't. But typical engineers, right? Like, we don't want to write down stuff because that's admin work. We don't do that. <laughs> so we lose this knowledge because people have it and then they try to pass it on. But eventually, you know, like it was a problem and everyone learns the lesson and then they spread the lesson. And maybe the next round of crew that comes in to take over, they hear about it because it's like, oh, yeah, we had a problem for that definitely don't run it this way or something bad will happen. And they go, okay. And they never run it that way, but they don't think to tell anybody else about it because it doesn't actually become a problem for them. And then here we are eight, 10 years later, everyone's forgotten that you really shouldn't do it that way. (laughs) And somebody goes back and does it that way. And then we do the same thing over and over again. So We struggle with the dynamics that we have of rotating people and, you know, just what you have time to learn. And you can work alongside someone that's been on that ship for four years. You can work alongside them their last year and soak up as much as you possibly can, but there's still going to be something that doesn't come up. There's still going to be something that gets lost. And when you repeat that cycle three or four times, we start to lose the stuff that we need to know on these complicated platforms. So the gist of what I was arguing for is a semi-permanent position obviously kind of handled the maritime way with two people that would trade out so that you always have someone on board working, regardless of where the ship is, that kind of keep that history, right? The guys that have been there for five or 10 years are the ones that look around and go, oh yeah, I've seen that before. It's cool. I got it. And that's kind of what you're looking for. And then also to take that burden off of the engineer officers who are looking at all the things they're looking at training. They're looking, I mean, one of the things I learned when I was on Stratton is there's like eight different training teams. You have damage control, you have limited, you have engineering, you have combat systems, you have a gazillion of these acronyms that end in TT Hmm. and they're all trying to make sure that everyone is trained to do their thing in a particular situation. And that's some of the stuff that EO is working on in addition to You know, mentoring junior officers into how to run a shop and doing all of the admin that goes with transfer season and marks and all of that other stuff. And having a licensed mariner in the position on board the cutter that can just say, Hey, you guys got all that. I'm gonna focus on the things in the engine room that need repairing, that aren't quite functioning right and making this stuff better, I think it would have a better outcome. And one of the things that is kind of a sore point for the Coast Guard, especially the naval engineering community, is that we've had a number of very large, very expensive failures in the last five years. And some of them go back to things like when cutters were delivered, the k pack wasn't hooked up right. Mm. And so we did massive wastage. Of a couple of hulls without realizing it. Some of them are, wow. are completely unavoidable, like Healy's main motor catching fire. That made the news. That was a huge evolution and a big deal. And they did the investigation, absolutely no fingers to point. The motor's 24, 25 years old, and something just grounded out. Actually, I think we had a short in the windings, but either way, something, you know, something just failed. And now all of a sudden a diesel electric ship is down to one shaft and we have to do the work for that. So there's these big things that happen, but some of the other ones were made worse by subsequent actions of people that didn't quite have a full grasp of what was going on on board at the time. And so if you put that engineer expert in there, I think that would help quite a bit as well as maintaining the continuity of knowledge and the ship specific stuff right like i remember standing watch on a steamship and the turnover i got was hey i've been fighting with the fuel air ratio all watch can't quite get it to stop smoking and so we were doing the you know the cyclical you smoke and then it clears and then you smoke and then it clears and you never quite get it right And I had been fighting with it for an hour or so. And the chief engineer who'd been on that same ship for like 20 years, I kid you not, walks down, kind of looks around, looks at all the stuff, notices the slight smoke to the stack, walks over to the feed water regulator, makes one tiny adjustment on the pilot, and then everything just settles. And I was like, come on, man. (laughs) I guess this is what we pay you for.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. I can definitely see how having a licensed mariner on board a cutter would be helpful to the Coast Guard and to retaining and furthering that knowledge base. So how about the other way? Do you think being a Coast Guard Reserve Officer has helped you in your career as a mariner? I really do, actually.
1: And, you know, as you know, we had the seven-year obligation, if you went reserve to pay back your time at King's Point. I know a lot of folks that were counting down to the seven years and out of uniform as fast as they could be. And, you know, some of them gave me the, like, why are you doing this? Why do you still put yourself through this headache? And, you know, I talked a little bit about the difficulties of balancing and all the stuff that I've kind of had to, like, timing-wise, this job, that job, how do we put it all together? But the reason that I stick with it is the military offers something that the maritime industry doesn't have. And, you know, the key thing, if you think about being a mariner, especially being in a union where it's not so much a promotion process as it's a bidding process based on your license, really the only criteria for advancement, at least up through first engineer, is do you have enough sea days and do you have all your STCWs, and do you have the right platform? So what happens is... You prioritize technical expertise to the exclusion of pretty much everything else. And in my shipping time, I've worked with a lot of amazing people. I've worked with a bunch of neutral people. And I've worked with a handful of people that would not survive in the real world. Bizarre, Everything from bizarre little quirks to overtly obnoxious behavior. And for the most part, it's all tolerated so long as you're a good engineer. So if you keep a good watch and you don't blow up a boiler and you know everybody knows they're probably going to sleep at night when you're on duty because you can handle all of it, you can be a pretty big weirdo or a pretty big jerk and you're probably still going to be fine. <laughs> and the unfortunate thing, now, you know, and those kind of guys don't typically get hired as permanent firsts and chief. So there is a little bit of personality and skill that goes in there. But realistically, the maritime industry does absolutely nothing to prepare you for leadership. And once you become a first, you're the foreman, right, in land terms. You're handing out work assignments. You're trying to encourage people that are stuck because, you know, what happens when the third breaks something? You go back and get the first and go, hey, first, I need help fixing this. So, you know, you get presented with all these issues that are hard. You get presented with people that are probably having a bad day at some point and could really use some encouragement. You have personality conflicts between people that are on board at any given time. And there's zero preparation for the transition from I do all the things as second and third to I am responsible for people as a first. And I know some folks that just have the natural skill set, either because they've you know, worked on it and done their own reading or whatever, or they're just a little bit better tempered for it that handle that transition okay or just fine. I also know some folks that really, really struggled with moving into the managerial engineering roles because they just don't do people and they didn't have to do people. And maybe they spent eight or 10 years avoiding people as much as possible, and now all of a sudden, because they want to keep advancing their license and sailing up, now have to deal with people. And you watch these storms that sometimes brew within a crew, and everyone's avoiding it and pretending it doesn't exist, and it just makes for some really unhealthy situations, because no one feels obligated to step in with the leadership role and do something about it. And so what the Coast Guard has done for me and what being a reservist has done for me is it forced me to be a leader from the beginning. Right. Like from the time that I was in Ensign, I had people that were working for me that had been in the service longer than I had that could try and, you know, either help me or lie to me and make my life miserable, depending on how I treated them. Right. And so I had to earn their respect and get their buy-in and fulfill my function in the organization, even when that was tough. And so like one of the things that I did a lot of working with law enforcement types within the Coast Guard is we had a lot of discipline issues. And so I found myself in odd situations. Like, I mean, I was filling in as the XO of the MSST. So second to the commanding officer for about six weeks, one summer. And it just turned out to be the worst summer of my life because we had two separate incidents. One was a sexual assault by a Coast Guard member on a civilian, one of our members. And the other one was some egregious breaking of liberty rules and lying and some other things that had gone on with it. And so in those six weeks, we did three investigations and took four people to mast. Wow. And that was tough because I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, I only do this part time. Why am I next to the green tablecloth, like, reading out the documents and talking about the findings from the investigation and laying out stuff that is going to get one of these kids processed out of the Coast Guard and get one of these guys, you know, a docked pay? So, I mean, we're talking about like real life implications. And I'm not saying they weren't warranted. I'm not going to get into any more details about the case. But it hits you with a certain level of gravity when you're like, yeah, this guy is really going to be affected the rest of his life because of decisions that he made. Right. But also I have to be the one to stand there and deliver it. And he is going to associate me with that decision for the rest of his life. Right. And that was a big growing experience. I've had a few other ones just, you know, with civilians and military members alike, where I've had to sit people down during performance evaluations and go, hey, not sure what's going on in your life. I'd love to hear about it if there's something we can help with, but I'm really noticing that things are, you know, you're absent from meetings. You're not answering emails. You're doing blah, 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 blah. And I'm not seeing you doing what the Coast Guard expects you to do, what the Coast Guard is literally paying you to do what are we going to do about this? And that is a really tough conversation to have. And it is even tougher if the person doesn't respond to that conversation and give you a chance to help them succeed, having to go back and then write the OERs and write the marks and write the paperwork that says this person is not performing. Right. Knowing full well that that's going to have an implication again on the rest of their career, the rest of their life. Like those were some sleepless nights and not stuff that I did easily and definitely not pleasant, right? Like I did not wake up going to work being like, yeah, I'm going to go do that today. Yeah. Definitely part of the job that I dreaded, but having to go through it and having to do it was a growth experience. And along the way, I got a lot better at it. And I overcame that natural tendency to like, this is hard. This is messy. I don't want to deal with it to kind of be like, this is hard. This is going to be messy. Here's the best way to deal with it so that this particular issue doesn't poison the rest of the team. Exactly. That's where I think the value is. And there's a lot of other things too, right? Like, I thoroughly enjoy the people that I work with in the Coast Guard. I've gotten to do some really cool, kind of random stuff by being a reservist. I mean, there's a lot of fun things that go in with the like, Every weekend or every month, once a, you know, one weekend a month and my two weeks of annual training and making sure that I go to ICS classes, like, yeah, some of that stuff is a little bit, not so much fun, but like I said, the people that I get to work with and the growing experiences, I think taking that back to the merchant Marine, when I can actually get back to shipping, I think will put me in a much better position to run an engine room. Right. Right. You know, by the time this is done, I'll have taken probably five years away from shipping. And yes, that is five years of technical expertise that I have not been racking up. So I'm going to have to work with the folks that are assigned to me to help overcome that because I won't be as proficient as someone that has sailed for 15 years straight. But I do think there's something to be said for learning to bring out the best in the people that you have on board at any given time.
0: Absolutely. I agree. I think that's a really good way to look at it. I think there's definitely benefits to taking that knowledge base to the maritime industry that is positive and can positively influence the industry for sure. And leadership is important no matter where you are. Yes. So with all of your maritime and Coast Guard experience and mom experience, what advice do you have for women seeking a career at sea? I have a couple things. I say this a hundred percent from
1: things that I wish someone had been able to communicate to me when I was just getting started and extremely stubborn and pretty rough around the edges. One of them is that if you are going to go to sea, not just work in an office and be on a ship sometimes, if you're going to be out at sea or underway for large portions of your career, you need to spend some time cultivating physical strength and I particularly fell to this because, you know, I came out of an academy. I was a multi-sport athlete, definitely not an all-star at anything, but I was pretty physically active. And I thought, like, yeah, you know, I'm fit. I'm fit enough. I got this. When I started working for the tanker company, it was a mandatory 12-hour day. And then we had duty nights every third night. And we had to wear hard hats and safety glasses in the engine room at all times. And the safety glasses I didn't mind, but the hard hat turned out to be the bane of my existence. And I would wake up, you know, a few weeks into a work tour, I would wake up and all of a sudden, like the entire side of my neck and my shoulder was so tight that I couldn't turn my head in that direction. It would take me days of like heat packs and rubbing at it. And, you know, ibuprofen and all this stuff to get it worked out. And then I'd be okay for a few weeks. And then it would happen again on another, on the other shoulder or something like that. I also injured my knee in a very odd way where just carrying a backpack full of tools going up and down the ladders on the king post to get to the lights, which, you know, we had like dozens of them on the tanker. And so I was always up there trying to get the lights working. Something weird happened with my knee and I was having trouble extending and flexing it. It Took them forever to get me an MRI. And then of course nothing was there by the time that we went to do it. I just really had a tough time moving around and doing all of this stuff. I left tanker's And I went from working six months a year to only working off the board, one job a year and 90 days. And I decided that because I wasn't working six months a year, I needed a fitness program. And so I got myself into CrossFit and I'm not pushing CrossFit as the be all end all. This is not a CrossFit (laughs) commercial, I promise. But what I learned in the years after that, I had never done weightlifting. Like I'd walked into a gym and picked up some weights once or twice, but I had never done weightlifting as a program I had always been a swimmer type, you know, hiking, get out and do stuff. I never lifted weights and I never focused on strength as an end point. And once we started doing CrossFit, it was kind of part of the whole program. And I had some really good coaches that walked through the body mechanics of the different lifts and what you were trying to accomplish in each one and what muscle groups you should be using in each one. And I actually, for the first time in my life, at probably the age of 24 I figured out, or I started to understand what people meant when they said, lift with your legs and not with your back. (laughs) I literally didn't know what that meant. And when I finally understood it, it was like, hey, not only do I not get hurt, but I'm way stronger when I lift with my legs. This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I developed an understanding of body mechanics, how to apply force to things. And so when I found myself crammed in some tiny little spot trying to break an inch and a quarter, you know, bolt from a flange around a piece of pipe. And I've got like, you know, one cheater bar (laughs) on it and you're pushing and nothing's moving. I learned how to like, hey, I have more force if I can get a foot up there, push on this thing way more than I do if I'm pushing with my arms and that sort of thing. And so I got stronger, which was helpful, but I also learned how to use the strength that I had more appropriately. And so that helped in the basic stuff. And then kind of ironically, after a few years of doing that, being in a coached training program, I went back to the tankers for a 90 day job. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the work tour that I realized that I hadn't had any issues wearing the hard hat and I hadn't suffered a lot of the stuff that was bothering me when I was working there the first time. And then later on in my career, even after my first kid, I found myself up and moving and running around, no problem staying on my feet for 10, 11, 12 hours a day. And I found these younger graduates that couldn't keep up. And it was like, come on, guys, what are we, you know, what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) At some point it finally hit me and I was like, man, I should have been doing that from the beginning because the first four or five years of my career were (laughs) rough, you know, like, it really helped improve. I mean, I went back to sea with a nine month old and I was still doing okay working 11 hour days. Yeah. So there's something to be said for that. You know, it's kind of whatever floats your boat, whether it's personal training or whatever, but thinking that I was athletic and that was going to be enough as an engineer, I wasn't right. It got a lot better when I got a little bit stronger and a lot smarter on how to use the strength that I had. And obviously there's still so many things that I have to go get a chain fall or something else or, you know, whatever. We need two people to move this or that kind of thing. But the injury rate has gone down and the ease and just the ability to handle a hundred some odd days of hard work. It got so much better after I got into a regular training. That's awesome.
0: That's a really cool thing I've never thought about, but that's, Really cool. Yeah. The second thing that I would say is that career
1: planning is overrated. And I mean, I say that especially for the military, because people will try and tell you like, you've got to do this job and then this job and then grad school and then this and then that. And if you don't do all of that, you're not on track to make 06 or whatever it is that you want to do. I would argue, particularly with shipping and just kind of life in general, you should do what interests you right this minute, recognize when you do it, identify what doors that closes, right? Because there's certain things that you have to do early in life. I think the big one for us when we were in school, and I don't know if this has changed since then, but if you wanted to be military aviation, you had to get on that train as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there's a couple of other ones, like you can become a lawyer later in your career, but the longer you wait to go to law school, the harder it gets to be like that kind of thing. So decide what it is you want to do right this minute. Be realistic about what doors that closes. And as long as the doors that you care about are still open, go and do it. One of the hardest things that I had to learn on my own through a couple of personal meltdowns was that success is different for everyone. And you can straight out of school pretty much do anything uh, as long as you meet the medical requirements, bad eyes, no piloting. <laughs> but you can do pretty much anything. You will not be able to do everything. Right. You're going to have to decide, you know, what you want to do right now. And for me, it was, I want to go to sea right now. I want that challenge. I want that adventure. I want to go out and do it. And then eventually that kind of turned into, you know, I want kids. I always wanted kids, but it was someday. And at some point I was like, you know, someday is getting close. (laughs) So I rearranged some of my priorities and it was still remarkably difficult to decide to not go to sea for an extended period of time. I mean, coming on active duty in 2019 was the first desk job I'd ever had. And I was like, what am I doing to myself? Like how... Who works five days a week? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, it was a tough thing to do, but it ended up being the right decision for where I was at at that point, right? So, you know, and success is kind of what you make of it. And now, there's been some sea change in the Coast Guard about how we use reservists and how people come in and out and. Space Force, I think, started it. The Marine Corps is also exploring it. The Coast Guard's definitely looking into how to make it easier to come on and off of active duty and do some of these piecemeal careers, which is kind of what I've been doing all along. So it's neat to see some of that coming together right at the same time. But I finally did at some point just realize that I needed to do The job that fit the best at the time. And for me, I had considerations about location because of my husband, travel and flexibility. Like there's some reserve units where drill weekends are scheduled and you do not drill outside the drill Mm -hmm. weekend. Had to avoid those because I can't handle that kind of strictness. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's hard when you're shipping, right? Because I was like... I had to email Sector San Diego and be like, listen, I know you all think I'm checking in this month, but I'm not going to see you for two more months and I'll weigh in when I get there. (laughs) So there's been some of that kind of stuff. And that's meant that I've had to take jobs that maybe weren't my favorite Mm -hmm. passion, but fit with some of the other things. And the thing that served me well, and that a lot of folks I've heard told this as well, is just, you know, whatever you're doing, do it Mm -hmm. well. And if you're good at what you're doing, other doors will open. Then you can make a decision on whether you want to jump to those or keep doing what you're doing or do something entirely different. But sitting down at the beginning of your career and saying like, I want to do this and this is how I'm spending the next 20 years, kind of overrated in my book. Definitely (laughs) am
0: not. Well, how many years later are we? I don't know. 16 out of school, hard to believe. 16 years later, I've definitely not followed the, you know, the rule book I had given myself <laughs> when I walked out of Kings Point. <laughs> yep. That's really good advice. Well, thank you so much for being here, Kelsey. I've had so much fun catching up with you. Yeah, it's been great. And learning about your life and everything that you've accomplished and continue to accomplish. So thank you for being here. No, I'm glad to be on, April. It's good to catch up with you, too. Thanks for tuning in to the Women Offshore podcast. What did you think of the show? Leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Additionally, if you want to propel Women Offshore forward, please visit womenoffshore.org or womenoffshore.shop, make a donation, or purchase some swag. Until next time, stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon.